go ahead and find uh, a Bible, either the one you brought with you, one that's in the rack in front of you, whichever it is, and make your way to Matthew chapter 18, 15 to 20 is our scripture reading. If you'll please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about any matter they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. In a recent film... Uh, which I have yet to see, but read a bit about this week. A recent film called The Monuments Men tells the story of a small band of unlikely soldiers during World War II. Artists, museum curators, historians, professors, who enlisted toward the end of that war with a specific charge to protect, recover, and restore historic buildings and bridges, and hundreds of thousands of priceless works of art that had been stolen during the war by the Nazis. It's an interesting story for several reasons, partly because it's a relatively unknown story up till recently. But it's also interesting in what it says about the remarkable value of something like art, but more than that, about the lengths to which someone will go to protect, recover, and restore what is valuable. So of all of the uh, impending threats and all of the atrocities during World War II, why would anyone even stop to think about art? It just seems, why would that be on the forefront of someone's mind? Let alone, why would anyone establish, quote, the Commission for the Protection and Salvage of Artistic and Historic Monuments in War Areas? as President Roosevelt established that commission in 1943. Why go to those kinds of lengths to establish that, to select people to go in for that specific job of protecting, recovering, and restoring art? The only explanation is that there's something incredibly valuable about what it is they're pursuing. The beauty of those historic works the stories that they tell, the cultural significance they have, the honor that they bring their makers, there's something so precious about them that they're worth redeeming even at a cost. Uh, For instance, if something really is that valuable, you're going to do what you need to do in order to protect that thing. Uh, The Mona Lisa was moved six times during World War II to keep it from being tracked down and stolen. Um, Michelangelo's statue of David was too big to move, so they literally built a brick wall around the thing to protect it from bombings or or damage. 
uh, the monuments men, that, that group of troops, they provided maps for pilots of which buildings to avoid bombing during their raids because those were historic buildings. And if you can avoid destroying those, that will be better for when the war is over and things return to normal and such. So you protect what's valuable. You also do whatever's necessary to track down and recover that which is lost or stolen. And so one of the museums that the Nazis used to kind of gather and redistribute their stolen art was a museum in Paris called the Je de Palme uh, Museum. I am sure I've butchered that in 14 ways, but there you go. So what's interesting about this museum is what the Nazis did not know is that the curator of that museum that they let continue to work there knew German. And so all the while, while they're amassing their stolen art and redistributing, she's taking notes of every piece that comes through there, where it came from, where it's going to. And at the conclusion of the war, they were able to track down 60,000 pieces of art through her notes. You know, if it's valuable, you're going to do what you can to track it down. Uh, Another interesting and and incredible recovery uh, was the Monuments Men raid on the Altasi salt mine near Salzburg. So this salt mine is where Hitler had stored uh, his treasure trove of pieces that were going to be the feature of a museum he was planning to build in his hometown of Linz after the war. Out of that mine, they removed 80 truckloads of stolen art, Uh, 1,800 paintings, 1,400 cases of both paintings and sculptures, another 11 sculptures and so on, including works by Michelangelo and Uh, Jan van Eyck and Johannes Vermeer and so on. And so if something's valuable, you're going to protect it. You're also going to track it down and recover it if it's that valuable. The third thing you're going to do is you're also going to handle it with care. And you're going to do what you need to do to restore it carefully and gently. So a lot of the paintings and things were damaged during that war. And so these experts were there to help restore them to their proper beauty. and, And they had to handle them carefully. Of course, when you're in war, you don't exactly have the kind of uh, materials you might use to pack up priceless art and ship it. So they use things like sheepskin coats and gas masks as packing materials. But that's what they had. And, And it was worth it because the art was that valuable. And then finally, if something is truly that valuable, you're also going to go to great lengths to distinguish the real thing from any fakes or forgeries that might have slipped in. Uh, It's interesting, among the recovered pieces, uh, the favorite art piece of uh, Hermann Goering, who was kind of the mastermind behind the looting of all of the art, his favorite piece was later discovered to be a forgery, uh, which is interesting. And so if, if something is valuable, you're going to do what's necessary to protect it, to recover it, to restore it, and you're going to distinguish between what's true and what's not true. And that story illustrates how preserving the integrity of value, the integrity and value of something precious, is really hard work. Oftentimes, these men went around by themselves through war areas, trying to track this kind of stuff down. It's hard work, but it's a labor of love. It's a labor of love, which means it's hardly work for those who value those things so deeply. It was worth the cost. And in fact, if you were to neglect that kind of care toward those things, that would be rather unloving, wouldn't it? And what kind of museum curator 
is going to sit back and watch somebody spray paint a Rembrandt or something like that. It's just not gonna, they're not doing their job very well, are they? Or, or watch somebody walk out with a Monet under their jacket or, or try and pass off their kid's finger painting as a Picasso or something. You know, if you value art, your love for it moves you to action. You must protect it. You must recover it. You must restore it and distinguish between the real thing and the false thing. The artwork is that precious. And yet, there is a work of art on earth that's far more precious than anything that the Nazis stole, than anything that human hands have ever made. It was designed before the foundation of the world. It was crafted by God himself, and it was paid for by Christ's blood. It is the church. The church, as Ephesians 2 tells us, is God's workmanship. We, the people of God in Christ, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's through the church that God displays his beauty and glory. It's his work of art that shows off what's valuable about who he is and what he's done. Not only to the nations, but as Ephesians 3 tells us, also to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. The church is Christ's greatest work of art. And we're not talking about buildings, cathedrals and such. Those are pretty. We're talking about the people. The people he has redeemed with his own blood. The family he has made through the cross and resurrection. That is Christ's greatest work of art. And he loves his church. He loves his church. And so it is that he commands his followers in our passage to protect his church. To pursue and recover those who wander from it. The lost pieces which are precious and valuable in his sight. To restore those pieces with gentleness and care. And to distinguish between those works of art that are truly part of his collection and those that are fakes or forgeries. We're talking about a subject called church discipline. Now, for some of you, it sounds like I just said a naughty word. Uh, Church discipline does not have a good reputation in or outside of the church. Um, If you're new here and perhaps just exploring Christianity, what we're going to talk about this morning is actually one of the things that tends to give Christianity a bad name. And so we need to be honest about that. But we also need to understand it carefully. What exactly is Jesus saying here? And my hope is that if, if we can understand it carefully and correctly, we'll see that, that church discipline is something that flows out of Christ's love for the church. It flows out of a heart of love and value that moves him to protect and to recover and to restore and to distinguish that which is precious to him, his people. It's kind of ironic and, and a little sad that while, you know, you, you think of that kind of care when it comes to art, and we're like, yeah, of course. But then when we apply that same care to the church or we talk about that, it comes off as, as it's often received with scorn. And it comes off as, as somewhat judgmental and mean-spirited and, and divisive and even abusive, such that a lot of churches today don't even do anything with what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, now, 
we also have to recognize the sad reality that there are too many examples of something like church discipline being abused um, and handled in ungodly ways. And the reality is in a room this size, there's a strong likelihood that some of you have been on the receiving end of that kind of mishandling before. And you may still carry the scars of that with you. If that's you, you need to hear the kind of strong-arming and bullying that would just seek to kind of uh, ignore criticism and silence opposition. If someone has done church discipline for that reason and you've been the recipient of that, you need to know that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That kind of bullying is part of the sin he's trying to correct his church from. Okay? But we also need to understand that just because something can be abused, doesn't mean it should never be used, especially when Jesus commands his church to care for one another in this way, as he does in this passage. We can't forget to whom the church belongs. It's not ours. It's Jesus's. And he created it for a purpose, to display his glory, to be a light in the dark world. Neither can we forget the gospel message that stands at the center of the church. The good news that sin really is sinful. It's not to be winked at because God really is holy. But that grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin because Jesus' blood really was enough. We can't forget that message, the seriousness of sin, but the sufficiency of grace. Jesus loves his church, and it's out of his love, the incredible value he has for it, that he protects and preserves her integrity and witness. And that's what we're going to see in this passage, that church discipline flows out of Christ's love for his church and his commitment to pursue and to restore that which wanders. We're also going to see how he accomplishes that by using us. By including his people in that very process. He gives us a method for it. And he reminds us of the basis of why we're involved in that process. But before we look at the method. I want us to to remember a little bit from last week. And what Pastor Bruce talked about. In terms of the immediate context for this passage. Last week Pastor Bruce walked us through verses 1 through 14. And he talked about how Jesus turns the categories of the world upside down. We need to understand what Jesus was saying there to make proper sense of what he's saying in verses 15 and following. And so what the world looked on with scorn, things like like humility or weakness or, or dependence, what the world, ancient world, looked on with scorn, Jesus actually looked on with favor. So what we saw Last week, as Jesus says in 18, verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it's those whose humility and brokenness and dependence bring them totally and utterly dependent on Christ. Those are the ones who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven, not those who in and of themselves flex their spiritual muscles and show you how good they are. And Jesus' care for his little ones is such that he wants to protect them from sin. And again, by sin, we're simply talking about disobedience 
to God. We're talking about rebellion against God. In the same way somebody might disregard their parents and completely ignore them or something like that, it's, it's, similar, it's similar to that. It's, it's choosing not to recognize God as God and his authority as king and instead doing our own way, even if it's against his way. That's what sin is. And Jesus wants to protect his little ones from it. It's so serious and deadly that he, he tries to explain the gravity with a little bit of hyperbole back in verses 8 through 9. Jesus says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Those are harsh and dramatic words. They kind of get your attention, don't they? And that's Jesus' point. It's, it's hyperbolic. He's not literally saying to do that. But he's saying that sin is so deadly and so dangerous that it's better to do something like that uh, to avoid it than to continue in sin and receive judgment for it. Sin is dangerous. You don't mess it around. And it's deadly not only for the person who's caught in it, it's also dangerous in the influence it can have on others. And so he wants to protect his flock. He says in verse 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus takes sin seriously, and so should we. Moreover, he is so passionate about his little ones that he is committed to pursuing any of them who might try and wander away. He loves them that much. He says in verses 12 to 14, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is committed to protecting and pursuing and restoring his precious sheep. It's because of his love for them that he takes sin so seriously and that he's not willing to let one of them perish. Each one is a priceless work of art, worth recovering whatever the cost. That's the context of what he now says in verses 15 to 20. That's the context for these instructions he gives us about what's called church discipline. And it's not that different from the kind of discipline some of us are used to in the home. You know, how many of us spent time getting spanked or going to time out growing up? You know, is it just because I see a hand back there, CJ, at least one honest person here. You know, is it because our parents hated us? No, it's because they loved us. In fact, you know, uh, if they didn't love us, uh, then they would let us get away with anything and so on. It, it comes out of a heart of love. And so Jesus, or the author of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 12, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And so Jesus' discipline, it flows out of a heart of love. We need to see that, and that's what we're going to see. But what shape does that take? When it comes down to it then, so, so it flows out of his love, but what shape does it take? How does he express his love and protection and pursuit? This is where he actually includes us in the process. The church itself has a role to play. And each one of us within it, in this protecting, this recovering, this restoring. And he gives us a simple method for it in verses 15 to 17. Lays out four steps that move kind of from from very personal to then more public confrontation. So step one is to go privately. To go privately to the person and help them see their fault. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between him and you alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, notice that the occasion for confronting someone here is the issue of sin. He's not talking about a disagreement or a difference of opinion, uh, nor is he talking about Uh, things that we may have a problem with, but that aren't specifically sinful according to Scripture. remember watching a conversation between an older gentleman and a young man where the older gentleman was trying to, was telling him that his earring was offensive to him and you should repent and no longer wear that because you're causing me to stumble. Which is not only a misreading of that passage from Romans, it's just plain arrogant and foolish. That's not the kind of stuff we're talking about here. We're talking about what God says is sinful, not just what we may deem sinful if it doesn't, if it's not sinful according to Scripture. So what's at stake is what the Scriptures consider sinful and therefore deadly to that person and dangerous to the flock. That's what's at stake, not our personal preferences. Nor are we talking about sinless perfection. Uh, such that you know, there's no room to be honest about our sin for fear of some sort of trial every time I mess up. That's not the point either. What matters here is the direction of our lives, not perfection. Are we moving toward Jesus, even if we trip every now and then? Or are we moving away from Jesus? That's the context. That's what's going on. None of us have arrived That is clear. Nobody here is is perfect. Nobody here is without sin or without mistakes. But are we moving toward Jesus or away from him? And if you are moving away from him such that you're sinning against God and against others, or when someone is moving away from Jesus such that they're sinning against you, and it's too significant to just forbear it and, and, and such, and that person isn't owning it, but they're continuing in that path, that's when the loving thing to do is to go to them and say something. That's what's loving to do, to help them see their fault. As one author explains, if someone else, another Christian in particular, has been offensive, aggressive, bullying, dishonest, or immoral, nothing whatever is gained by trying to create reconciliation without confronting the real evil that's been done. 
Forgiveness doesn't mean it didn't really happen or it didn't really matter. Forgiveness is when it did happen and it did matter, and you're going to deal with it and end up loving and accepting one another again through the cross. That's forgiveness. So we we serve no one by pretending when things aren't messed up. We love people by helping them deal with it such that relationship can be restored with God and with one another. But notice how Jesus says to do this between you and him alone. So if someone sins against you, go privately, not to your friend to complain about it or to Facebook to vent about it, not even to your pastor. Go to the person. You go privately to the person. And moreover, we need to go humbly, not assuming that we know everything in the matter and willing to listen if we share the fault. So, you know, some of us love to be the prosecutor. We don't like to be the defendant so much. But if the gospel of Jesus, that sin really is sinful and grace really is sufficient, if that fills our heart and guides us, then we need to be just as willing and eager to hear where we've been wrong or when we've hurt somebody as we are to help them understand how they've hurt us. So we need to go humbly with willing hearts to listen. And we need to be gentle like an art restorer handling that priceless work of art. Not, not brazenly, not accusingly, not abrasively, but with the gentleness of Christ. There's another word for this, what this process is describing right here, other than church discipline. It's called friendship. Friendship. This is what friends do to help one another walk with the Lord. To help each other see where am I not getting it? Where am I walking away from Jesus? And to help bring one another back to the Lord. Discipline is simply the corrective side of discipleship. We talk a lot about discipleship, helping somebody grow in their walk with the Lord, in maturity and so on, depending on Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus. Discipline is simply the corrective side of that. The goal of both is the same, that we would be more like Christ in the end. And if your friend sees their sin and turns from it, Jesus says you have gained your brother. That's the goal. It's not about punishing them or showing them up or anything like that. It's about restoration. It's about gaining back that friendship, that relationship, both with them and with the Lord. You have helped recover a stolen piece of art from the enemy. And the discipline process, if, if you go to them, they, they hear you, they turn. The discipline process is over about as quickly as it started. And the only two people who know about it are you and the person you went to. Or the person who came to you. This happens all the time and we just have no clue about it. If it's done correctly. And if that person turns, that repentance should be met and embraced with forgiveness. And we're going to talk more about forgiveness next week when we look at the rest of chapter 18. But if they turn and they, and they own it and they confess and they, they turn from their sin, we should meet them with, uh, with forgiveness and reconciliation. The process has worked. That was the goal. But what happens if they don't 
respond, which happens sometimes. What happens if they ignore your plea and they continue in their trajectory away from Christ? Well, then step two, you take someone along. Step two is take someone along. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, the idea here is not to gang up on somebody, you know, uh, but it's to get help in appealing to this person in love. If they won't listen to you, maybe they'll listen to you and a couple of friends who likewise love that person and are aware of their sin. And, and that same gospel-driven motivation and goal applies here. It's, it should be marked with gentleness, with humility, with prayer, taking sin seriously and applying serious grace to that sin. And if they do not hear, the other purpose of taking two or three witnesses, uh, two or three people with you, is that uh, Scripture requires that a charge of wrongdoing in the church be established by two or three witnesses. That's a principle Jesus is drawing here from clear back in Deuteronomy 19. And the idea is to protect people from false witnesses. Uh, So it needs to be established by more than one person. And if that person's unwilling to turn, then the two or three witnesses come together for step three. And step three is to tell the church. Beginning of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So... And in general, that means bringing the concern to the church leadership so that they can help guide the church in appealing to that brother or sister together. In our context, that would be the elders and pastors. And basically, you might think of this as a family intervention. You know, maybe some of us have had to participate in that. You have a brother or a sister or a parent or an uncle who is just destroying their lives through some sort of addictive behavior. And... And the loving thing to do is to no longer sit back and watch them do that, but to come together as a family, to come around them, to remind them of your love, to help them see the, the damage and destruction they're doing in their lives, and to try and win them back. That's, that's the goal here. The, the family of God coming around their brother and sister and saying, you belong to Christ. You're part of us. This isn't healthy. This isn't safe. Come back. Come back to Jesus. Love moves us to action, even if that action is sometimes awkward and painful. We cannot sit back and do nothing. And you kind of see the trajectory here from more private to more public confrontation. So the more unwilling someone is to turn away from sin, the more public the appeal to them becomes. And I've had to be a part of this level of the process twice in my life, uh, part of a church where in both cases, a husband left his wife and family for an adulterous relationship. Um, and it's a heart rent. You never want to have to deal with those things at that level. But what you cannot do is step back and say, oh, that's too bad for that family, isn't it? And you watch the, the horrendous effect it has on them the horrendous effect it has on that person's soul and the, and the danger of the influence they can have. Love moves us to action. 
to say this is not acceptable. This is not what Jesus has for you. Christ is not willing that one of his little ones should perish. He must do everything possible to protect, to recover, to restore that brother or sister to the Lord and to our family. It's hard. It's awkward. But what's the alternative? If love is what drives us. And what if they still do nothing? What if they continue to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to our cries? Then you go to step four, which is the last resort, but sometimes necessary. And that's excommunication. Which is like a swear word in in church, right? Continuing in verse 17. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does it mean to let somebody be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector? It's language of covenant exclusion. It's language that considers them outside the family of God. Outside of the church, excommunicated, we call it. It's not necessarily to say, this person's not saved. Only God judges the heart. It is to say that I can no longer affirm that they are saved because the direction of their life is contrary to the gospel of Jesus, which saves them. Jonathan Lehman helps clarify what's going on here. He says, in more specific and formal terms, church discipline is the act of removing an individual from membership and participation in the Lord's table. The church is not telling the individual to stop attending its public gatherings. I want you to hear that. It's not shunning. It's not breaking all ties and and pretending as though that person's dead to you or not letting them back in. We want them to come and hear God's word preached. Rather, the church is saying that it can no longer affirm the person's profession of faith, and so it refuses to give the Lord's Supper. It's excommunicating or excommunioning the person. He can no longer be regarded as a citizen of God's heaven, not when he's living like this. Now, that sounds harsh and judgmental. And it is rendering a judgment in a sense, which Jesus gives his church authority to do, as we keep reading in verses 18 to 20. But we need to remember here the context of Christ's love. The purpose to protect, to recover, to restore what is precious. He's not willing that one of his little ones should perish. You are worth that painful process to recover and bring back to the Lord. It's not necessary. Excommunication is not necessarily a permanent thing. It's another misconception we sometimes have. In fact, ideally, our desire and prayer is that it's a very short-lived thing. That, That through that compassionate warning, the person would be awoken to the gravity of the situation and would turn and come back to Jesus. That's the desire. That's the prayer. It also serves as a means of making distinction between counterfeit Christians and the real deal, between genuine believers and those who don't belong to Christ and never really did. Because if, the, if, you, if you belong to Christ, 
and you're unwilling to heed that appeal to turn away from sin and come back to Christ, that reveals something about the condition of your heart. And, and so just as the, the art people had to make a distinction between forgeries and the real deal, excommunication helps make that distinction in the flock. If it goes unheeded and that person never returns, it clarifies whether or not they ever truly belong to Jesus. If someone refuses to walk with Christ, they should not be allowed to have a formal influence in the teaching and direction of Christ's people. Again, sounds harsh. It's simply logical, though. If someone refuses to walk with Christ, they shouldn't be upheld as a representative of the church. They're actually giving Jesus a bad name. They're disrespecting him. If we love the church as Christ loves the church, we're going to care about its purity and its integrity. When I was in college, um, I remember one of my mentors telling me, as I was thinking through which church I was going to land at, that I want to go to a church that's willing to kick me out. That was part of his instruction. Obviously, they need to preach and believe the gospel. They need to preach the Bible. They need to be willing to kick you out if you walk in unrepentant sin. That sounded weird at the time, but it makes so much sense. If they're not willing to address unrepentant sin in my life, they don't really love me. That's what that comes down to. Again, not, it's not about you, you can no longer come back here or anything like that. It's about helping them understand, making clear that, that you who were once part of this body have cut yourself off from it by refusing to turn from your sin, and so we can't pretend that everything's just okay. Because you no longer represent Christ, you're an unhealthy influence on others, and your soul is in danger of hell if you do not turn back to Jesus. We have to register that somber but serious warning when members of God's flock wander from the Lord. We want to see him come back to Jesus. So what happens if we don't do this? If we conveniently, because of how awkward this is and and because of the criticism it might raise, what happens if we just kind of politely ignore these six verses of Scripture? What would have happened had the monuments men not stepped into the dangerous context of war to seek out and protect, recover, and restore those priceless works of art? They would have perished in the war. And that's exactly what's at stake in church discipline. Jesus is not willing that any of his little ones perish. Without this loving but hard process, the beauty of holiness and grace that comes from the gospel of Jesus becomes swallowed up in the ugliness of selfishness and sin. Instead of bringing honor to God and representing him well, the church brings dishonor and shame on his name. And it eventually becomes irrelevant. If if we are enabled to go on away from the Lord without any sort of correction, and the world can no longer tell the difference between the church and the world, we're not exactly doing the world any service, are we? Um. The unique contribution of the church, what we have to offer the world that no one else has, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is 
That's the light that we shine. That's the, the mission we are sent to do. That sin really is sinful because God is holy. But grace really is sufficient because his blood was enough to cover that sin. And if we turn from it and we trust him, there's forgiveness and there's new life. There is hope amid the darkness of the war of this fallen world. There's something better on the other side when the conflict is over. And it's beautiful and it's worth preserving. That's our message. But if that gospel message ceases to shape our lives and behaviors, what do we have to offer? What can we do to serve the world that the world can't actually do better than us, probably? A gospel-centered church is a discipline-practicing church because Christ cares that much about us. We're that precious to him. One more question that we need to ask, but much more briefly. What right do we even have to speak into the lives of one another? What right does a church have to exclude somebody from membership or even to excommunicate somebody if necessary? Verses 18 to 20 remind us of the basis for church discipline, and they do so by echoing something that Jesus has already said in Matthew 16. So verse 18 Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, Jesus, we, we talked about this imagery a lot more in depth a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 16, so I'm not going to go into all of that depth again. You can go back and read that or or listen to that. Um, But he's using the same imagery here that he used when he described the special role that Peter was going to play in the establishing of his church. And the authority that he gave Peter in that passage, what he called the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which are for the binding and loosing, uh, metaphors that are somewhat obscure to us, but I hope to make clear in a moment. That, that same authority he gave Peter in that passage, he now gives to the rest of the apostles and through them to the church. As we talked about back in chapter 16, binding and loosing have to do with the affirmation of who belongs to Christ's church, who has entered the kingdom, and the affirmation of those who are outside having rejected Christ. And so it's this idea, it's about making distinction between genuine believers and counterfeits, or genuine believers and those who don't follow Christ. Not on the basis of whatever we want, but on the basis of the gospel of Jesus, on the basis of the good news that we find in the scriptures. In accordance with the gospel message of trusting Christ for the forgiveness of sins and following him, in accordance with that message, Jesus gives his followers authority to make that distinction. He does not make us the judge. He is the judge. But he does enable us to make a warning and to anticipate the judgment that will come if someone separates themselves from Jesus and does not come back to him. That is why we are able to participate in church discipline. Jesus gives us the authority to help make those distinctions among one another and point each other to Christ. But his main point here, is that when you find yourself having to do this difficult but loving work, 
you have not been left alone in that responsibility. He's given us a guide, a standard, which is his gospel according to Scripture. He's given us the authority to preserve the integrity of his church according to that gospel, to protect, recover, restore, to make distinctions. And most importantly here, he promises to be with us by his spirit when we have to walk through that process. Now, Christ is always with us, but he's talking about being with us in a special way to guide us in this process. We often look at verses 19 and 20 and we talk about them in terms of prayer. And that's true as far as that goes. But the context here is church discipline. So Jesus is with us when we gather for this responsibility. And that, the, the fact of Christ's presence should make us both humble and bold at the same time. So it should make us humble, recognizing that the one who will actually stand in judgment at the end is in our presence as we exercise that discipline. And that should we be tempted to abuse this process for some sort of personal gain, that will not go unnoticed by the judge. He is with us to guide us and protect us from doing it correctly. But it it should also make us bold. So it makes us humble. It should make us bold, recognizing that the one who will stand in judgment at the end is present with us. And that he loves his church more than we can ever imagine that he is not willing that any of his children perish, and that he will be faithful to guide our steps through this loving but difficult thing. Christ loves his church. That's why he can't stand back and do nothing when we walk away. The church is God's workmanship. It's created in Christ Jesus for good works. That we should walk in them. And Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. May we love his church enough to be willing to speak into each other's lives. May we love Jesus enough to be willing to listen when others speak into our lives. And together, may we be faithful to walk with him by the grace that he supplies so that the world can see his beauty on display through this priceless work of art called the church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us. Lord, I pray, um, you know, right now there's no doubt a flood of different emotions going through our hearts as we think about what you're saying here. Some of us are no doubt offended. Some of us are scared. Some of us feel vindicated because we've been taken advantage of in the past and we recognize that you do care about that. Lord, whatever is going on in each heart, may the predominant note be your love for your people. That you are not willing that any of us perish, but that you will do what it takes to protect us, to recover us from wandering, to restore us. Lord, may we see in that a love that is incomparable. And Lord, may we remember that what it costs you to love us that way. 
taking every offense, every wrong word, every sin, every act of defiance and rebellion, taking all of that onto yourself on the cross, exhausting your father's anger against our sin, that we might be reconciled to him as beloved children and have a home in his family. And that when you look at us now, even when we mess up, you're not seeing that old unrighteous sinner. You see someone clothed in the righteousness of Christ, a beloved child. Lord, may we not make light of the price that Jesus paid to redeem us by winking at sin and walking away. May our hearts be compelled by the love of Christ to follow you, to lay down our lives for your sake, to lovingly help one another do that. Guard us against our own sin in this process, Lord. Keep us humble. Keep us fixed on you. And Lord, may that love mark everything about our relationships as a church. May it mark the way that we love and interact with the world. May it mark the way we care about one another. Lord, we pray for those among us in need that we would love one another as we've been loved by Christ. Pray for Catherine Kidd's father, Harold, that you would bring healing to him from his fall. For, for John Blecker, a brother, that you would bring healing to him. Lord, we pray for John Quazo that you would continue to help him recover, to regain his mobility, his ability to walk and run and, and do all of these things that we so daily take for granted. Give him grace to persevere in the training. We pray for Ruth Hep, Lord, as she enters into her last series of chemo tomorrow. Lord, we praise you for how you have been guarding her life, and we pray that you continue to make this effective in eradicating that cancer, God. Lord, guard her heart and her life. They are in your hands, and you are trustworthy. So we pray for your grace and healing. Lord, we pray for others who are, whose lives are affected by cancer, for Mary Boy, for Bob Norcross, for Bob French. Lord, continue to protect them. Continue to bring healing. Keep them dependent on you. And Lord, we thank you for those who serve us throughout the globe uh, on behalf of the gospel. Lord, would you be with uh, David and Debbie this morning as they share in a few minutes, be with their work in South Africa, be with Ashley as she heads to Lebanon this, morning, this summer. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of your servants going to the ends of the earth for your name and the privilege of partnering with them. God, we ask all these things in the precious name of your Son.